The orbiter sped through the air at just under 1,500 miles an hour at an altitude of 46,000 feet. And then it was, according to a report, totally enveloped in the explosive burn and broke into several large sections which emerged from the fireball. The nose flew away and pressurized air broke the orbiter apart from the inside. Then the whole spectacle fell towards the ocean at 2,000 miles an hour and the cabin hit the Atlantic Ocean with a force 200 times the force of normal gravity. What was that? Some sci-fi movie? No. The date was January 28th, 1986. The mid-air disintegration of the space shuttle Challenger killed all seven crew members, one of whom, Krista McAuliffe, had beat out 11,000 other applicants in NASA's Teacher in Space project. She was going to be the first teacher in space. She did not make it there. Well, what blew up the Challenger? It was the time of the Cold War. Was it a Soviet surface-to-air missile? Was it perhaps a suicidal crew member that destroyed the plane from the inside? No. It was an O-ring. Actually, there were two O-rings. Now, an O-ring is a donut-shaped piece, rubber piece, that creates a seal. And there were two particular O-rings on the Challenger, the primary one and then a backup, that uh, the cold air, the unusually cold air in January 1986, had stiffened the O-rings and prevented them from sealing the joints. So hot pressurized gas, instead of going straight down and launching the Challenger up, instead spewed out the sides and blew everything up. The details matter. The details matter. The details matter in manned spaceflight. The details matter in the worship of the one true God. God's people had been given careful instruction through Moses about how exactly and precisely the Lord wanted to be worshipped. But they treated his commands as suggestions, as his meticulous, detailed instructions, as a broad brush outline for how to live. And what was the result? The result was a massive, shocking explosion. The destruction of the temple. The annihilation of God's city, Jerusalem. And the action, the, the after action report is clear. Gross immorality and extreme unfaithfulness in God's people, God's priests, God's kings. And now in Ezekiel chapter 40, 41 and 42, Ezekiel receives a guided tour of a holy and majestic vision of a glorious temple, reminding him of how things should have been, but weren't. 
and pointing towards what things will one day be. Now, the details matter because God matters. We should give careful attention to the worship of the Lord. And part of that is considering the passage before us. We'll do it under three headings. First, I want to talk about the mysteries of God. That's in the first three verses of chapter 40. Then, in a single verse, the method of growth. And then, chapter 40, verse 5, to the very end of chapter 42, I want us to contemplate measurements for glory. So, mysteries of God, method of growth, and measurements for glory. How's that for double alliteration? So, first... In the first three verses of chapter 40, we have mysteries of God. Now, by mystery, I do not mean secret, like it's Agatha Christie. Instead, I use the word mystery the way the Bible does, to indicate a partial revelation of what has been somewhat obscured. When we talk about mysterious in this way, we are saying that we can recognize and know the existence of something without ever claiming to know it completely and fully. Now, the mysteries of God should make us really excited. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works, the words of this law. The grandeur of the mystery should make us glorify the Lord. He is so great, so vast, and so infinite, we cannot possibly begin to comprehend him in his glory. We are small. God is big. We are finite. God is infinite. Only God is the perfect theologian, not simply because of the moral perfection that's required to know who God is and his goodness, but simply because the only being intelligent enough to know everything that needs to be known about God is God alone. And yet, and here's the joy, God chooses to reveal himself to us. He condescends to declare to us sacred and profound mysteries. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Jesus, things in heaven and things on the earth. We don't know everything, but we know everything that we need to know. We don't know everything, but we know everything that we need to know. And we can proclaim it. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, speaking of his own ministry, he says, this is how people should regard us as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries, steward, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We get to proclaim those things which the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 are things that even angels longed to look into. God has chosen to reveal to us great and wonderful things. Now, we see the mystery here in these opening verses of Ezekiel. The the date is very clear. It's April 573 BC. 
But Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me to the city that is is Jerusalem. And he says in verse two that there were visions of God that, that he brought me. He was carried by visions of God. So the means by which Ezekiel arrives at his destination are mysterious. Did the visions of God actually move Ezekiel to a specific physical location? Or more likely, did the visions of God give Ezekiel some kind of virtual experience of being in a different destination? To put it in our context, did the visions of God fly Ezekiel somewhere? Or did the visions of God kind of provide Ezekiel with virtual reality goggles and gloves and such so that he could experience things in three dimensions, even uh, though he was not transported to the city of Israel? These things are mysterious. Whatever's happening, Ezekiel is operating in three-dimensional space. He set me down on the mountain, and that sounds very concrete. But then he says, there was a structure like a city to the south. Again, there's mystery. Was the structure like a city because of its sheer size? Or is, he, is there another point of comparison? And then in verse 3, well, look. There is a man whose appearance is like bronze and he has a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand and he was standing in the gateway. So visions of God let Ezekiel see and experience a structure like a city with a bronze man with a humongous yardstick and measuring tape. Now, Things can be mysterious, but that doesn't mean that we don't know things. Consider the following 10 digits. 3095, 295, 560. 3095, 295, 560. Now, for a mathematics class, one of the young Bruce's in Bruce Academy had to write the biography of a number, and he chose the number pi. So I, as a father, but also I call myself the visitor of Bruce Academy, Catherine is the the headmistress, Uh, I got to learn about this number. Now, we know what pi is. Pi is the first irrational number that we learn in school. Pi times the diameter is the circumference of a circle. Pi r squared is its area. We know pi. We teach pi. But we don't know pi. The digits of pi go on forever. Pi exceeds our ability to calculate it. Even though we know pi, learn about pi, and teach pi to our children. Pi exceeds our ability to comprehend pi. In 2009, under the headline, Pi in the Sky, Google and P-I in the sky, not P-I-E, Google announced that the Google Cloud calculated 31.4 trillion digits of pi. Last year, 2022, Google, under the headline, even more pi, P-I in the sky, Google announced that their cloud calculated 100 trillion digits of pi. Think about how quickly Google functions. You start typing best church in North, and it, and it, auto, it auto completes it. Northwest Arkansas, Covenant Church, Fayetteville, 4511 West Whitington Drive. It's amazing how good and fast Google is. Well, how long did it take the Google cloud to count to, the, to get to the 100 trillionth digit of pi? 157 days, 23 hours, 31 minutes, and 7.651 seconds. 
They started the program running on October 14th, 2021, and finished March 21st, 2022. It's quite an achievement represented by the 10 digits I gave you a moment ago, 3095295560. So if you're ever asked what's the trillionth digit of pi, you know the answer is zero, which is a little bit in, like, it was disappointing to me, right? Because it's like two, could it be seven, but it's zero. All right. Now here's the thing. How there are a hundred trillion more hundred trillion digits of pi. You get to a hundred trillion and that's nothing. It's a quite a, I mean, it would be weird to say that it was like your life accomplishment that you knew that the hundred trillionth digit of pi is zero, but it's a great sermon illustration. Uh, and, th- and it is to say that we can know pi, we can teach pi, we can calculate pi to the hundred trillionth digit, but even then, we have not begun to explore all the digits of pi. So too, we know the Lord. We learn about the Lord. We teach our friends and children about the Lord. But we have barely scratched the surface of the glory, splendor, and awesomeness of the Lord God Almighty. Our, the Lord exceeds our ability to comprehend him. That is why Deuteronomy 29, 29 is so beautiful. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But he has given things, he has revealed truths about himself to us. And these are precious treasures. So Covenant Church, don't be afraid to say you don't know. God knows. But also don't be afraid to say we know this. Because the Bible clearly teaches us. And think carefully about what the Bible teaches clearly, what we know, and what we don't know, so that we can preserve and protect Christian liberty. Don't shirk away from the clear teaching of Scripture and say just because it makes you uncomfortable, God shouldn't have said it. But at the same time, don't write your own private second opinions, chapter 12, and try to foist it on everybody as though that is, in fact, the word of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith helpfully situates between chapter 19 of the law of God and chapter 21 on religious worship and the Sabbath day. Right between these two is chapter 20, and it's of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. When God speaks clearly, we must obey him to the most meticulous detail. We should not, we cannot negotiate over the duties he's given us. But we should also realize that within the safe boundary markers of his love, there is great freedom. There is liberation. So first, the mysteries of God. Now, second, the method of growth. It's a single verse. Verse four, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, the man says, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. Think about these verbs. Look, hear, set. Well, why? For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Your arrival here, Ezekiel, the man is saying, is not purposeless. On the contrary, you are put here in order to learn, to have your heart changed and grow, and then for you to declare, for you to clearly teach what God has revealed. God does not want Ezekiel to be coy 
about what he has learned, but to proclaim these truths openly to the house of Israel, even though we know and Ezekiel knows that these people, as, as far back as Ezekiel chapter 2, the first words that are spoken in the book of Ezekiel are the Lord saying, you need to go to the house of Israel because, and they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to you because they're rebellious, impudent. They are stubborn. Even still, Ezekiel, look, hear, set your heart on what you've learned and declare. Learn the mysteries of God and teach them to others. And we must do the same. We must be diligent to speak truth even in the face of great danger. The Bible is full of wonderful examples of how God's people are courageous and they speak even in the face of danger. Think, for example, in Esther chapter 4, when Queen Esther learns from Mordecai that God's people are in great danger of extermination. And Esther explains, I can't go because if you approach the king without being summoned, it'll be the death penalty. But she eventually agrees to approach the king on behalf of the people, pleading with Mordecai to get people to fast on her behalf, promising to do the same. And then she says in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She looked, she heard, she set her heart fast, and then she openly declared. Well, what about you? Do you listen passively this morning to what you hear and it doesn't change and transform your life? Are you silent so you don't even set your heart on it? Do you set your heart on it, but you don't openly declare it? If if so, then you need to repent. And I'm not saying this because this is like the J. Bruce story hour. I'm saying it because this is the word of God. This is the only hope we have. These are the only truths that can carry us from this sinful world to heaven. And we have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned about our friend, neighbor, colleague, coworker, the person next to us in, in the subway or the airplane or the bus next to us in school? Are we more concerned about the glory of Christ or having this person like us? I call this second point the method of growth, not simply because there is a call for an internal transformation of Ezekiel that he should set his heart, but principally because this is the method of growth. This is the way the church grows. Think of how you came to faith in Christ. I remember someone telling me that basically he was converted after hearing me have a conversation with him and starting to go to church with me when I was in graduate school. And I was the world's most reluctant missionary because he was the year behind me and I was, I was uh, studying for my comprehensive exams for my doctorate, but he kept asking me questions. And I wanted him to shut up because I needed to study, but I still wanted to answer his questions, right? But this is the method of growth. God has committed to us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the message of reconciliation. We get to say to people, we, we can implore people, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So mysteries of God, method of growth. And finally, measurements for glory. Measurements for glory. This occupies 
the rest of chapter 40, all of chapter 41, and then chapter 42. In these chapters, Ezekiel follows the bronze man with the yardstick and the measuring tape all around this vast structure. All the measurements speak to the grandeur and glory of the building and so serve as a symbol of the glory of God. It is the place where, as we'll discuss tonight in Ezekiel chapter 43, the glory of the Lord returns. Look at at verse 5 of chapter 40. There's a little uh, observation that he has to measure with a long cubit instead of a normal one. Right, an indication of how vast the measurement's going to be. So it's not quite a, a long cubit. It's just a little bit longer than a, a normal cubit. But imagine if I said, well, and this is not true, especially if you've been to my house, you know this isn't true. But if I said, well, you really have to measure my house in square yards, not square feet, right? So, oh, we got to get out the long cubit in order to measure the Lord's house. And the measuring reed is not just six. It's not just one long cubit. It's six long cubits. So it's about... 10 feet long. It's a big stick, right? He also has this linen cord, which I take to be a kind of measuring tape, maybe for longer distances, maybe for measuring around corners. We're not sure, or at least I'm not sure. So he first measures the east gate. This is in verses five to 16. Well, why? The east gate's the most important gate. It's the gate where the Lord left the temple. The Lord left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. So imagine the east gate got the last kiss of the glory of the Lord before it departed. And as I mentioned a moment ago, in in Ezekiel chapter 43, the glory of the Lord is gonna return. Where is it gonna return? Through the east gate. So it, of course, is measured first. And the very first measurement given in verse five should astonish us, right? The thickness of the wall is one full reed. Well, I just told you that one full reed is six long cubits, which is about 10 feet. So the, the walls are really thick. This is, a big, this is a big structure with 10-foot thick walls. Then having measured the east gate, he walks through the outer court and measures it. This is in verses 17 to 19. Then the north court, 20 to 23, and then the south gate, 20 to 20, 24 to 27. Then he begins kind of working his way inward into the inner court through the south gate. He measures it. This is 28 to 43. He measures the chambers for the priests. So you can imagine there's this exterior wall. Then there's an interior wall with all these chambers. And then inside it is the temple. So you get to the vestibule of the temple in verses 48 to 49. Then in chapter 41, the man measures the inner temple. And the temple is 100 cubits square. And the doorposts of the nave before the holy place are squared as well, right? They're, they're, they're perfect squares. He also measures all these side chambers and unnamed buildings, all set aside for the worship of the Lord. So even in the context of very meticulous work measuring everything, some things are unnamed. But all the vast buildings, all this whole complex, this structure like the city, is totally dedicated to the worship of the Lord. Now, such was, all, was not the case. One commentator remarks that, that King Manasseh had abused these suburbs of the temple to keeping horses sacred to the sun. So just measuring this stuff should be a reminder to Ezekiel 
of what, what went before. That God's people used even God's temple to worship rival gods. And even when they weren't offering worship to rival gods in God's temple, they found ways to profane it uh, apart from the worship of false gods. Ezekiel's contemporary, Jeremiah, is actually imprisoned in the temple complex in Jeremiah 20, verse 2. Such irreverent use of the house of the Lord has no place in God's plan. And there is before the holy place, I read this section a moment ago because uh, I I think it's uh, fascinating. In verse 22 of chapter 41, there is an altar of wood, and this is the altar of incense. And this altar is higher than the corresponding altar of incense in Ezekiel chapter 30. And its surface area is much larger too. It's four square cubits dwarf. The one square cubit, its surface area is four times that of its predecessor. I think beautifully depicting that the table of the Lord to come is much grander than the table of the Lord in the past. These are measurements for glory. Well, they return to the outer court as Ezekiel 42.1 reveals And then the man measures the chambers in the yard, where the priests eat. This is verse 13. And even their change of clothes, verse 14. These measurements are a reminder that what's doing here is holy work. What they're doing here is holy work. It's set apart from the everyday pedestrian concerns. They have holy food. They have sacred garments that are not meant to leave the temple complex. He then, in uh, verses 15 to 20, measures the, the uh, whole temple area. It's 500 cubits by 500 cubits. The consensus view is that it, the whole, just the temple by itself, 500 cubits by 500 cubits, couldn't possibly fit in the whole ancient city of Jerusalem. That it just blows out the entire city. Again, just like the table, a picture of how the worship of the Lord is just going out beyond the ancient boundaries, more glorious than anyone could possibly imagine. These are measurements for glory. Measurements for glory. But not everything was measured. I don't know if you, if you noticed it, but in this guided tour of measurements, Ezekiel did not go into one place. He did not enter the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. And with good reason. Yes, Ezekiel is a priest, but Ezekiel is not the high priest entering the holy place one day a year on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16. Two quick points here. First, when God wants to build a house, he does it very well, he pays attention to detail. And that should encourage us. That should make us look towards heaven because Jesus says in John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Trust in God, trust also in me. And what does he say? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you also may be. Friends, the Lord Jesus himself is preparing a place for you. And we see in Ezekiel just how careful and thoughtful the Lord Jesus is when he prepares places. Second, though Ezekiel could not explore the whole house of God, the Lord Jesus himself did in fact enter the holy place as both priest and sacrifice, as Hebrews chapter 9 makes clear. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus, the high priest, is also the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's also the temple. As G.K. Beale notes in the temple and the church's mission, the spiritual destruction, the spiritual destruction of Israel's temple occurred decisively at Jesus's death and resurrection. And its physical demise came finally in AD 70 when the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. You'll remember that this is just what Jesus says in John chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple. The religious leaders are angry with him, and they demand a sign to show that he has the authority to do what he did. And Jesus answered them in John 2 and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John adds a commentary. He says, but he, that is Jesus, was speaking about his body, the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus They all went perfectly according to plan. Everything was measured and directed for the glory of Christ and for our good. So let's remember that theology can sometimes be technical. Bible study can sometimes be difficult. But remember that God did technical work for us. Christ did difficult work for us. You may think that all you need to know is that Jesus died for your sins. And that's true. All you need to know is that Jesus died for your sins and trust in him. But at the same time, there is delight and joy in learning the Bible and seeing the intricate details of God's plan coming forth in fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great pleasure it is to explore the measurements of God's glory on every page of the Bible. I exhort you to do it. So mysteries of God, method of growth, and measurements for glory. 
Well, in conclusion, let me say that we should do what the man tells Ezekiel to do in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 4. Look with our eyes, hear with our ears, set our hearts on what we've learned, and declare it to the Lord. Let's remember that the temple was declared for glory. And come back tonight as the uh, Lord returns in Ezekiel chapter 43. But let me add here in closing that you too are prepared for glory. Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, as he is hard-pressed in ministry, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We are made for heaven. And even now, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And that should give us great confidence, but also sober-mindedness in how we live. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You may feel worthless this morning, but you are not. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You may think that you can wander and you can do whatever you want to in this life, but you cannot. You are bought with a price, the precious body and blood of the Lord Jesus. So honor God with your body. The temple that is your body is a temple of the Lord. Let's live that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would grow in grace as we think about the extent of your glory. And we thank you that you exercise your glory for our good, that there is no office that Jesus does not hold that he does not exercise on our behalf, that he is a prophet for us, a priest for us, and he is our king and our God. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.